0: when it comes to using humor at work i think taking a step back we are facing a massive challenge in our world right now around trust a 2019 hbr survey found that 58% of employees trust a complete stranger more than their own boss and so you know what we're finding at stanford and beyond is that there's this global trend where it used to be that leaders needed to be revered and now we're finding that leaders need to be understood that they need to be vulnerable, they need to be human. And trust is a huge component of that. And humor creates a window into authenticity and trust.
2: Today, we have two guests joining us, Dr. Jennifer Ocker and Naomi Bagdonas. Dr. Ocker is the General Atlantic Professor at Stanford's Graduate School of Business and is a leading expert on how purpose and meaning shape individual choice. We first met Jennifer at a conference where she was talking all about the importance of happiness, and now we're going to talk about humor. So we love any time we get to cross paths with her. And Naomi is a lecturer at Stanford and an executive coach. And together, they have spent years studying the effects of humor in the workplace. And they put those observations into their book, Humor Seriously. Hi, guys. We're so excited to have you here. Welcome to Skim from the Couch.
1: It's so good to
0: be here. So excited to be here.
1: So we'll start off with our first question. Naomi, I'll go to you first,
0: which is, can you scam your resume for us? Absolutely. So I had a background in strategy and management consulting while on the side, I was doing comedy on my nights and weekends. So I reached this point in my early 20s where I realized I was completely leading a double life and was totally professional, austere, kicking butt at work with no semblance of a personality. Meanwhile, was having a whole lot of fun on improv stages and in, you know, dimly lit theaters on nights and weekends, which led me to realize that it was going to be really important to me to merge these two lives. So I spent a while actually developing team dynamics uh, workshops for groups of executives, traveled around the world doing that went to business school at Stanford, where I met Jennifer, and we realized that we have this real shared passion and belief in the power of humor, not just to make our lives more joyful, but actually to be more effective in our jobs as well. So that was about six years ago. And since then, we've been collaborating on that work, writing this book. And then I've also been doing coaching with leaders, uh, CEOs, and celebrities on how they can bring more authentic
3: humor into their style.
1: Very cool. We're going to get into all of that. But Jennifer, you're up. Skim your resume for us.
3: Well, when I was young, I was a really impressive tennis coach for, you know, that small window between age 11 to 13. But then let's fast forward to now. Um, I've been an academic for pretty much all my life. As you said, I've studied meaning and purpose and how that differs from happiness and how the idea of having more of a meaning mindset actually infiltrates the decisions we make in the day to day. So that's kind of the heart of my work, how, how we use money time and an understanding of meaning to make better decisions for ourselves, but also hopefully all of humanity. And then I guess the last thing I'll say is, as most academics do, there's a point in time where you decide you'd like to have greater impact in the world than you currently do. Because you know, for 20 or so years, I was trained, as most are, to you know, essentially run studies, write those studies up in academic papers where 10 people would read that paper. And if it was really good, 15 people would read that paper. And that is sort of impact. And so when I decided I wanted to have a bit more impact, one of the things I did was write a book with my husband. It was called The Dragonfly Effect. And that book was about how to harness the power of story and social networks to make positive change in a world.
1: When we first met you, we met you at a conference and we met you, we were getting coffee right at, right before you went to go speak at the conference. And you, you said, you know, I'm in academia, like, I, you know, I work here and here. And I'm like, okay, like, obviously very impressive. And asked what you're focused on and you're like, humor. And I honestly thought you were kidding. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay, like, sure. And you explained like really the science behind it and and how it is such a key part of like so much of our resilience as humans and also a key part of a lot of our professional world. And I'm really just curious, like how did you choose to go down this path as a point of study?
3: Well, first of all, to be clear, I am voted the least funny person in my family. My family takes surveys and Everyone in the family, including, I think, our dog, believes I am to be the least funny person in the family. So it's not like I'm naturally known for humor. I am no Naomi Bagdonas, let's say that. But, you know, in this book that I wrote with with Andy, The Dragonfly Effect, what had happened over the course of a year is we ended up working with 17 families, all of whom had children, or in some cases, parents, who had leukemia. And we needed to find a match for them. So we harnessed the power of story and social networks to drive change. And in this case, change was we needed to get you know ideally 100,000 people into the bone marrow industry in a very short period of time. So over the course of a year, we worked with these 17 families to try and find a match for them. In that year, we ended up losing 16 of the people we worked with. And so it was a devastating year on so many levels. And I reflected back on the experience. And one thing I found was out of the 16 families we worked with, the, there was these incredible moments of joy and levity and humor that were found even in the last days of their life that stayed with me forever. And then the other thing that really impacted me was that the one person who did survive, Amit Gupta, he used humor and levity and joy, as did his friends, in the entire year that we worked with him trying to get people in the bone marrow industry and so I saw that, you know, humor was not only a window into who Amit is authentically, but it also demonstrated to me like how much, you know, humor and laughter together, even in the darkest of times, deepened connections and it mobilized people, we all wanted to move, and, and somehow we were able to move more nimbly, being very effective toward this goal of finding him a bone marrow match.
2: Jennifer, you spoke about this a little bit, but Naomi, why did you start with improv? Like, were you funny? Because when I think about this, and, and we'll get into it, but like, I feel like the scariest thing would be to
0: try to be funny and then realize like you are just not. Yeah, I think the worst thing to possibly say is I am funny and I will not say that in part because (laughs) I truly believe um, I was always really drawn to comedy like obsessed with comedy I was not self-conscious at all when I was little especially about you know recreating my favorite SNL sketches you know forcing my family to sit on the couch while I did Troy McClure bits from the Simpsons when I was like eight years old and so I've always just been super drawn to comedy and humor and a lot of this actually came from a similar place to Jennifer which is I found humor to be an incredibly powerful and connecting thing for my family growing up. So my my mom is just this person who, you know, sings and dances her way through life leaving a trail of joy behind her. She's a she's a magical woman. And what we found was There was a while when i was growing up when um when my dad got pretty sick and he's actually okay now but there were a couple of years where things were really hard for my family and i remember one christmas morning we didn't have a christmas tree that year because normally the christmas tree was downstairs and my dad couldn't go down the the stairs at that point so i remember my sister and i woke up on christmas morning we walked into the living room and my parents had decked out my dad's iv pole with tinsel and lights and my dad was wearing the tree skirt around his waist (laughs) and we just all were crying laughing just like just relentlessly finding joy in this really dark corner of our lives and of our experience and so for me... My passion for humor and comedy did not come from a place of, oh, wow, I think I have a talent in this. Actually, it came from a place of, I think this is one of the most important things that I can possibly do for my own experience of life. And I think it's just one of the most connecting things that we have as people is to find ways to create joy together. And so that's where it came from. And then to your point about having a real fear of failure it's the biggest fear from our students when they walk into the classroom is, oh my gosh, are you going to ask me to be funny? And the reality is the the most important thing that we can do in our lives is not tell jokes and be funny. The most important thing we can do is have a fundamental mindset shift in how we look at the world. And that is navigating the world on the precipice of a smile just looking for reasons to be delighted rather than disappointed, looking for reasons to smile and being more generous with our laughter. And we find that that, when students walk in, they're like, okay, 10 weeks from now, I'm going to be able to tell jokes. And in fact, by 10, you know, 10 weeks in the future, that doesn't matter. What matters is they're navigating their lives and they're finding more joy and humor and levity without even really trying.
1: Cheddar I'm really curious because one of the first things Naomi said was, you know, when she was kind of living this double life, she was, you know, this serious business professional by day and had this, you know, literally humorous lifestyle by night and weekends. And I'm curious, Jennifer, like in your studies, how common is that? Not necessarily common that people have, you know, a, an improv career on the side, but how common is it that people like turn off
3: some of their personality within the workplace? Such a good question. You know, with our students and even the executives that we teach, we find it, you know, it it to be incredibly common. In fact, I would say that you two seem to be exceptions to the rule. I think Naomi's story is not only common, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. We often believe that certain, you know, characteristics about ourselves, like our sense of humor or having some levity or even smiling or being a human, um, have no place in the workforce. Because if we take our work seriously, we should take ourselves seriously. In the book, we dive into these four deadly myths associated with humor. And if you put the word deadly in front of it, it makes it sound more important. So that's just a little side tip for you guys. But um, the first one is... (laughs) You know, this serious business deadly myth that humor simply has no place in the in the workforce or any place that takes yourself seriously. But the research shows that even just laughing has unparalleled effects on our neurochemistry and our behavior. So it, it literally, when you laugh together, it changes the chemistry of your brain to make you more primed for connection, more creative and more resourceful, and more resilient to stress. I'm very sarcastic
1: and, I, and it's really important to me to be around people that I, I can laugh with. And I know you talk about, I believe it's four different types of humor that, that you sort of described. Can you tell us what the four are? I wanna kind of gauge where we fit. <laughs> Carly wants to know how funny she is. Yes, because I have no problem
3: saying I'm funny. <laughs> um, okay, Naomi, describe the humor types and then I'll take a whack at Danielle and Carly. All right,
0: so we've got four humor styles. The stand-up, the magnet, the sniper, and the sweetheart. So stand-ups, natural entertainers, outgoing, not afraid to ruffle feathers to get a laugh. You know, like to roast, like to tease, big personalities. Next is the magnet, similarly outgoing, but magnets tend to keep things positive, warm, uplifting. They avoid controversial humor, they radiate charisma. They're the ones buying a round of drinks at the bar while laughing. Uh, Next we have the sniper. So snipers are a little bit more introverted and their style tends to be edgy, sarcastic, nuanced. So it's sort of, they they say that they have an acquired taste and they're also not afraid to cross a line in pursuit of a laugh. So really good at at zingers and uh, with deadpan delivery. And then lastly, we have the sweetheart. So again, a little bit understated in their delivery, earnest and honest they, again, tend to use humor that's more uplifting, that brings people together. They would never you know, make someone else the target of their joke if they thought it might hurt feelings, but they're not the ones that want the limelight and are gonna be on stage. So those are our
3: four. Okay, so this is, this is a best guess. Carly, in the back of your mind, you should be thinking what you think Danielle is, and Danielle, oh. you should be thinking what Carly is. Oh. Okay, so just okay. think. All right, you got it, okay. All right. So this is um, our best guess. Danielle, you are likely a sweetheart. And Carly is part magnet and part sniper. Okay. And when I say we, I mean, Alex, Alex told us this. So Oh my gosh. Alex is on our
1: team. Yeah. Alex, get off get off camera. You need to be put on the spot now.
2: Uh, (laughs) Alex is terrified right now. Yeah. I think that what's interesting about this is my humor in the workplace is very different than my humor. That's what I was at gonna home. say home. And I was gonna say that my humor style for the podcast or in the office is probably more sweetheart, but I think in in reality, it's definitely more sniper. Yes, that is true. <laughs> She's like midwest in work
1: New York, New York behind the scenes.
2: and Carly, I don't know what this falls into, but like any like seventh grade boy category, What's like that. <laughs> You have
1: like guy humor. Okay. You always say that. Like, <laughs> I say that I like to eat like a like a child, like a 12-year-old boy because I like gushers and you know, stuff like that. Okay. I think that I am sniper, but I think at work, I probably do straddle. I, I, I actually don't know which I'd straddle. I think I either straddle sniper and stand up or sniper, um, probably sniper and stand up.
2: I would agree with that. I mean, how often is that, when you guys come across this, that humor types vary depending on what the audience is?
0: Yeah, this is common and actually it's super healthy. So in particular, it's really important to, to recognize there's a powerful relationship between humor and status. And so what we find is that as people get higher in status, your humor style needs to shift. And this is because one of the principles of, of comedy is never punch down, basically never make fun of someone who's of lower status than you. And so in particular, what we find for people who are senior executives in organizations is they tend to have more teasing, biting, you know, edgy humor outside of the office. But when they come into the office, they really have to use humor that's more uplifting because if they don't, then people who are more junior on their team might take it the wrong way or might have hurt feelings. So we often find that that's the case, especially with senior folks. And then the reality is, just like anything else, the appropriateness of what we say at home versus what we say at work is different. You know, we have different responsibilities. We have different relationships with our colleagues than we do with our families. And so it's it's actually really good that you're not making all the jokes around the boardroom that you are around the dinner table.
1: How do you advise people to use humor to actually gain leverage in their career, especially if somebody says, like,
0: well, I'm not funny. Like, I'm not the funny one. There was this wonderful study done that showed managers who signal they have a sense of humor. So regardless whether they are rated funny, people who are who are said do have a sense of humor Are rated by their subordinates as 23% more respected, 25% more pleasant to work with, and 17% friendlier. And so part of this is just signaling that your sense of humor has a heartbeat, right? This is not, again, this is not about being funny. This is just about signaling that. And then, you know, when it comes to using humor at work, I think taking a step back, we are facing a massive challenge in our world right now around trust. A 2019 HBR survey found that 58% of employees trust a complete stranger more than their own boss. And so, you know, what we're finding at Stanford and beyond is that there's this global trend where it used to be that leaders needed to be revered. And now we're finding that leaders need to be understood, that they need to be vulnerable, they need to be human. And trust is a huge component of that. And humor creates a window into authenticity and trust.
1: I Humor is something very important to me. You know, on this podcast, especially, like we have no problem being self-deprecating. Like we have no problem being like our authentic selves. At the same time, like we're both very, very hyper private and, and protective of our privacy. And a lot of the trust authenticity that you see with, you know, big name influencers or celebrities is kind of putting their whole lives out there. And you can see the humor in there every day, but like you're also seeing like everything about them. And I imagine that some people's reactions like, okay, how do I bring humor and trust into my workplace if I'm a really private person? And I I don't wanna necessarily be self-deprecating or I don't wanna be so vulnerable in in front of my peers or, or boss. How do you advise kind of striking that balance?
0: Yeah, I think lean on humanity Lean on levity, don't lean on humor. You know, for example, interactions are so technology mediated, right? And in that context, it's really easy to lose sight of our humanity. We are communicating digitally. It's easier to have emails sound really generic. It's easy to get on Zoom calls and jump right into the agenda without acknowledging, you know, what photo is in the background of Danielle's screen, which it looks like maybe a wedding photo or a painting or a painting in the back of Carly's screen. There's a way in which, similar to how I I was in my early twenties, we go to work and we turn off our personalities and our humanity. And so more important than being funny is just acknowledging little moments of humanity with each other. So that's in things like being on a Zoom call with each other and, you know, asking about your painting in the background, which now I'm very curious about that painting in your background. To be honest, I got it at a yard sale and I don't know what it is. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I love yard sales. There we go. Jennifer, what what would you add to that?
3: I completely agree. I mean, part of this also is, you know, the ability to read the room and understand what's going on in a room, what are the goals of a meeting or an interaction, what's your status level, and also, you know, what's happening in the room. And so what we do in the class is we actually talk a little bit about how you read the room and understand what our goals is, is it to increase status. Is it, as status is it to build bonds or are you using some humor just to diffuse the tension in the room
1: can we stop there like can we do like two tips on how to read the room
3: yes absolutely first of all we find that people who are highly empathic do this kind of naturally like they're it's just like you know fish swimming in water you just you know empathically are able to do this but for individuals who have less empathy oftentimes you there's these very sort of simple cues, you know, that have a lot to do with A, actually nonverbal mannerisms, like whether other people are nodding or looking at you in the eye or looking at the Zoom, you know, little button in the eye, whether they have the video on or off. And so better understanding and assessing people's A, engagement in the event. And then also B, you know, the degree to which there's You know, certain status differentials, which oftentimes people know going into a meeting, but you can also, again, observe them based on verbal patterns, et cetera. So, one of them is just basically better um, understanding physical mannerisms. And the second one that we talk a lot about is what is the goal? Why are you using humor? You know, so it's not just like we're trying to increase people's use of humor. And certainly this isn't about being funny, but just understanding what is the goal of an interaction and therefore what is the role of humor. So, for example, when you had that riff back and forth about Carly's propensity to be a 12-year-old boy.
1: Let's relive this. This is great. Yes, let's go for it.
3: And so that, that, that little callback is a way of sort of not just diffusing tension, but also building potentially a bond, because you guys clearly are so close. We were, intended, and Ted Danielle told me I was a 12 year old boy. <laughs>
2: Carly, that was funny. Good Thank job. Thank you. Thanks.
3: <laughs> the idea is how do you use humor, or in that case, a callback? In order to build a bond or diffuse tension in the moment, because that's one of the goals of, you know, for example, you know, our interaction with the podcast. So I would say those are two things, better understanding the audience and better understanding goals in a meeting.
2: When I think about 2020, it's been probably like the least humorous or light year that I think many of us have ever had or certainly had in, in decades Are there examples of leaders you think have managed to take some of the principles you talk about and apply them even
0: in this environment? Absolutely. There are some really beautiful examples going on right now. Connor Demon-Yalman, who is, uh, he's actually a a co-lecturer of ours at Stanford, and he's the co-CEO of a large nonprofit in the US. And recently he was addressing his entire organization on a Zoom call. And it was this sort of important moment addressing the entire team amidst really incredible hardship. And his goal was to signal care and signal reassurance. And he frankly wasn't quite sure what to say. And so he worked really hard to figure out what, you know, what would help and what to say. And he's on this Zoom call with his entire team. And uh, he goes to pass pass it off to his co-CEO. And when he does, he pretends that he forgets that he's screen sharing. Right? So he's screen sharing to his t- entire company. And he leaves the screen share on while he passes to his co-CEO. So she starts speaking. And meanwhile, he opens up a Chrome browser. He goes to Google. And you know everyone's eyes are wide. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, what is the CEO doing? And he types into Google, what things do inspirational CEOs say during hard times? <laughs> And everyone just lost it. I can relate. But it was this beautiful moment of levity, signaling vulnerability in a totally unexpected way. But it was also rooted in what was so true and so real at the moment, which is, I love you guys. I want to show care. I want to inspire. And I don't know how. I love that story. In both
1: of your own careers, you each have and and currently do consult with like high-powered, big-named people, right? And, like, you're talking to them about humor and authenticity. And I'm just curious what it is like to, like, sometimes have to give feedback on, like, personal and even sensitive parts of, like, a
3: high-powered person's personality. First of all, we only talk to high-powered people. So just, I, I, we're, we appreciate that you notice that it's really these high-powered people that where it's just, you know, it's it's magical. I'll defer to Naomi on this one.
0: I have found that it is this beautiful pressure release valve where oftentimes people want to have more of themselves at work. They want to be laughing more, but they don't know how. And the most common misconception we find among our, our executive clients is that they think that humor involves inventing something from thin air right? And when you think of it that way, it seems really, really hard. And the reality is humor comes from just being observant, being tapped into what's true for you and voicing that in unexpected ways. So Connor is a great example of this, right? If Connor had come to me and said, how do I tell a joke in this big, important meeting? I would have said, forget jokes. Tell me what's true for you. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What are your employees feeling and thinking? We start there and then we're able to mine that truth, that reality for humor that's actually really productive. right? What Connor did, it was funny and it was also productive for him and for how people related to him in the company. It's not about being critical with people, it's more about you know shifting this misperception of, I need to write jokes, I need to deliver lines, tell me how to land this line. It's like, no, 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 no. We need to teach you the skills to mine your life and take the reality and truths of your life and turn those into really productive humor for you.
1: How do you advise somebody listening to this how they should use humor to help them get a foot in the door or in a job search?
3: So one of the things that we have all of our students do is we do this bio with levity activity where they rewrite their bio, which, as you know, is very serious. It's very important. You know, basically lists all of their awards and accolades. So they take it and then they can do it and uh, revise it in one of two ways. One is just with, you know, full on kind of funny version. And the second is just a touch of levity. So just taking the last line and doing something that is not necessarily self-deprecating around their areas of strength, but potentially self-deprecating in another area. So in small little things like that, when we find when our students actually go to get jobs, what's been remarkable is that the power of the bio with with levity allows them to come across as not only impressive, but also a human. And it gives people something to talk about that's not just the job specs and why they would be good for the job. And in so doing, it creates a whole other way of interacting, and it decreases the time it takes to really get to know someone. That's one tip from a interview perspective that seems to really work well. A super tactical tip is something in comedy called
0: callbacks. So look for opportunities for callbacks. This is essentially just listening for moments when laughter already exists and then mentioning them later. So this is particularly powerful. In a job interview, you're two humans interacting for 30 minutes or an hour. There will inevitably be some moment where you share a smile or you share a laugh jot that down. And when you do your follow-up to that job interview, include a line to that, right? So in my follow-up email, if this were a job interview, I might mention Carly. I know I would never, but I might mention I your propensity for gushers. I think that you can mention that. You can even send me gushers. That's good. <laughs> exactly. That's I could send you gushers. And what this does is Two things. One, it creates a, an inside joke between us and we feel more psychologically bonded, which is actually a really powerful thing. Two, it's the lowest bar for humor ever because you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is mention a moment that was humorous. And three, it makes the other person feel like the hero if the humor already came from them. Again, a really tactical tip, but it's something that I do with every client conversation I have. I'm always jotting down a moment of laughter and always following up with that callback.
2: So let's move into our last round, our lightning round. Since we have, or a lot of us have been working remotely, what has replaced your morning commute?
3: Jennifer, you go first. I take a walk with our dog. So our dog loves remote
0: work. That is my exact response as well. I take a walk with my dog. My dog is living his best life. Yes,
1: (laughs) so is mine. So you guys obviously have spent a lot of time together recently writing a book and um, clearly have collaborated a lot for each of you. Naomi, what is Jennifer's quirkiest working habit? And Jennifer, what is Naomi's quirkiest working habit?
0: Okay. Jennifer's, I don't know if this is a quirky working habit, but without fail, the more important the meeting we're in, the more likely it is that her dog will show up, that her husband will show up, that her kids will come in without <laughs> shirts on. Uh, her, sorry, her sons will come in without shirts on. So that's like, it is truly a direct correlation between importance of meeting and likelihood that we will be Zoom-bombed by multiple <laughs> of Jennifer's family members.
3: Naomi really enjoys having a potted plant next to her. That is so random.
2: <laughs> what is the last uh, TV show you have
1: binge-watched?
3: Oh my God, Shit's Creek! It's unbelievable. Yeah,
1: that was a quarantine binge for me. Watchmen. I liked that show a lot. Who's each of your favorite comedians?
3: John Mulaney. No, John Mulaney.
1: <laughs> we share. We share a favorite comedian. My last question: When was the last time you each negotiated for
3: yourself? Oh, I just negotiated saving thirty minutes of time in a a recent. Meeting. Do you need to know whether I was successful? No. Let's just stop there then. (laughs) Ooh, when
0: was the last time I negotiated for myself? Oh, I arrived. (laughs) Um, My boyfriend and I were apple picking in upstate New York, and we arrived apple after the orchard had closed. And we got there, and they said, We're closed. And I looked at them and I said, I know you're closed, but could we go in anyways? And they said no. And I said, okay. So, just to confirm, we can't go in anyways. And then she looked at me and she said, all right, go ahead. Okay,
2: good. Thank you guys both for your time and congrats on the book. I think it's something we could all use. You guys are so fun. Well, thank you guys.
3: Mm, Our pleasure.
2: Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another
1: episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day.
2: Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.